0: You're listening to The Outward Hire, a podcast for all things hiring. My name is Javier Blaza, a software engineer at Touch of Modern by day and by night, founder of Marti, a virtual assistance platform. I sit down with job seekers and hiring managers to talk about their hiring process, main takeaways from their experience, and what advice they can give to listeners like you. I think in
1: order to find that personal style, a lot of designers and illustrators beat themselves up about you know, trying to bring something out within themselves. As if your style was hidden inside of you and you really need to meditate and focus and just spit that out somehow. But a style doesn't come from thinking really hard and trying to manifest it in your own mind. And this is advice that was given to me. The, the key to finding your own style, and I think this goes for a lot of things in life, is to keep trying different things as fast as possible. Until you find something that you latch on to.
0: Today on the show we have JJ Aquili, a graphic designer from Stokoe Design Studio. So JJ, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Abby.
0: So JJ, I wanted to ask you about the design program in Ateneo and what made you like go into it or like what what made you choose Ateneo to begin with and then what made you choose that specific major that you're in? I believe it's information design, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've always been into the arts um, and actually entering uh, college. What I wanted more than anything was to pick a course that wouldn't particularly tie me down to one thing um, and give me the freedom to explore a lot of different things. Uh, and I've been really into 3D modeling for a while, animation. Sometimes I help out with the uh, UX projects. Um, and so I chose information design specifically because of how vague it was to me at the time. I mean, I know what it is now, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of things. It's creating, it's processing information, maybe even data in a way that people can understand and interact with. Um, but it was really alien to me at the time because it's a lot broader than graphic design, a lot broader than and a lot vaguer than just UX design, right? Um, and that's why I chose it, because I wanted a creative field that wouldn't limit me, right, to just one thing.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in high school, did you have any previous exposure to, like, 3D modeling, as you said, or, like, Photoshop or those kinds of technologies before you entered into Atenea?
1: So my friends and I were always into the DF 2 like our go-to video game for like all of high school Um, and there was a time I tried modding the game Uh, and for a while I really wanted to add my own weapons into the game because there was a workshop that you could submit weapons to and get paid uh, when people bought them from the steam store I never got to finish that I never got to finish anything for the game but that was my first step into the learning blender and 3d animation and modeling as a whole
0: gotcha and this is just something that you stuck to when like moving into college right
1: yeah it was fun cool. i picked it up learned it on my own
0: um are your is anybody in your family like do you have siblings or your parents even like are they are they artists or designers or are they on more technical roles
1: my parents and a lot of our extended family are doctors. So, you know, there was a big motivation for me in my childhood to get into medicine, but, you know, that didn't happen. I actually got accepted into um, this pre-med course in in UP, University of the Philippines, right? but like I, I didn't push through with it because I something told me I was really um, meant for creative work. That's what always excited me.
0: Gotcha. And do you think that, like, did your parents see this in as like a skill that you are really passionate in, and like something that they were really supportive in pursuing, or do you have to like convince them that, like, oh, this is something that I am really passionate about and something that's I think is gonna be worth my time.
1: My parents were really supportive, but I could also tell that they were sad that I didn't push through with Med. Um, <laughs> but I think they they really understood that this was something I could do once I started getting projects uh, and and working on them, even as a student, which they were pretty impressed by.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you... Uh... Well, I guess in Ateneo, you're grouped into, like, batches of, like, students in, like, a specific, like, major or something like that. Um, were there other people in, um, your batch or your cohort that didn't have, like, that didn't know how to use specific, like, technologies? Or were you guys all on the same level? Um, because I know that at Chapman, the university that I went to, um, Like, most of the freshman graphic designers, they didn't even know Photoshop or they didn't know, like, specific technologies, but then they wanted to go into digital, but then they knew how to paint or draw in high school. Um, Did you experience, like, a lot of, like, did your classmates have, like, that kind of experience already?
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of people enter design, from what I could tell. Uh, with a background in illustration and and uh, and painting, without much of a background in digital design itself, I think that comes like like what what you witnessed, right? And what I what I also witness um, in among among my batchmates, I think comes from this notion that uh, design is is a lot like drawing and painting, except more lucrative and Real world oriented, you know what I mean. <laughs> which which isn't really true. Like illustration is very different from making layouts or UI design, and painting is is super departed for the most part from like logo drafts, logo drafting, and then uh, illust- and digital illustration. Uh, but yeah, a lot of people did enter my course uh information design with that kind of background a lot of people adjusted to it and i know a few people who are very unhappy because of it
0: well why would you say that they're unhappy um
1: i think when you're in high school and when you're in grade school there's this idea that you want to get into the arts or be an artist and when you finally have to choose a university i think people get into design despite wanting to really get into arts, um, out of this hesitation thinking that, you know, you can't really make a solid lucrative career on the arts and and design is a compromise to create the field that's both practical and um, visual. Uh, And and I I think people with those kinds of expectations either end up loving design or are hating it right cuz it's it's not the same
0: <laughs> right i think i think a good way to divide like differences between art and design is that like art you create something that has um you create something then the audience needs to it's like it's up to the audience to generate meaning or generate value out of what you're looking at And design is more like, okay, you're designing for a specific purpose or a specific goal in mind. And I think, yeah, I feel like they're two completely separate things on the spectrum. But at the same time, they also share a lot of things in common.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I think about that often, actually. And I I think art is a very personal thing. Uh, for the most part, right? It's it's self-expression. It's expressing your own opinions about something, um, and and whether or not that gets received the right way isn't up to you anymore. But as a designer, it's your responsibility to make sure something communicates,
0: right? Have you have you seen like the what's it called like the there's this specific art style that's um it's like i don't know if you've studied it but it's like toilets and uh it's it uh is, with- is it like brutalism or something like that i don't i have no oh. idea
1: okay for, for toilets i think you might be talking about like duchamp's fountain um the urinal yes that one yeah oh my god I used to hate conceptual art. I actually thought it was super pretentious. Uh, but but I, I I don't know. Um, it, it, it does feel pretentious just putting a toilet on a wall or, or taping a banana to a gallery panel. Like, what the heck? Uh, Do you see that? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't
0: know. <laughs> I, I don't know about it.
1: Yeah, but I don't know, personally, I've weirdly, I never thought I'd come to this point, but I've started really enjoying conceptual art just because of how daring it actually is to even pull that off, knowing full well that there are people who think it's pretentious and weird and wacky. Particularly the work of Ai Weiwei is something I've been following a lot lately
0: uh what does he or she do or they do <laughs> oh, he, he. it's
1: okay he. Uh, is a is a chinese um artist and a lot of his work is is really conceptual you wouldn't think of a spreadsheet as as art right but one of the works I remember from him that got a lot of attention and flack from the Chinese government was a sheet full of names, all right? Because there was an earthquake that happened in China, maybe a decade ago, that had a lot of casualties that were covered up by the government, particularly school children that weren't publicized, right? So he went from door to door with the different affected villages and schools collecting names that weren't publicized by the Chinese government and put them on this gigantic canvas just this whole sheet of names. So at first glance it's like wow, an excel sheet as art. Huh. What's this, who does this guy think he is? But then, you know, when you when you realize that these are names that were censored by the government, right? Um, it, it it achieves this whole other level of meaning. That is mind-blowing to me. And also this whole level of cultural relevance, um, yeah. So so that that's that just stand up stands stands out to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. It could be used as like it's a different medium, right? I mean, like you have people who write and people who um, create images and draw stuff, and I think yeah, it's a different way of like communicating meaning towards whatever you want to drive towards. But yeah, really interesting, huh?
1: That's a a really good point. Like it's a completely different medium, right? You're not playing with visuals. You're not trying to impress anyone with your technical skill. It's the idea that matters in this case. Right.
0: When we, um, there's this interesting thing. Have you ever, have you ever built, um, Ikea furniture?
1: I actually haven't.
0: <laughs> One thing about IKEA furniture is I think that um what makes it different compared to all other types of furniture is that the instruction manual only contains pictures. Ah. So it's like it's like building a Lego, but then like it shows you like step by step how to build the pieces of furniture using diagrams instead of words. And I think And I think when we use like images or imagery as well, when we think of it as like a universal language that people can understand, um, I feel like that speaks volumes louder compared to something like words.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I know some designers use sign language on their portfolios for the same reason, you know, like it's actually a universal thing. For, for most people, right? Like if, if I'm not mistaken, like ASL is used across different countries, regardless of the language, even the Philippines uses uh, American sign language.
0: I haven't, I've never Uh, used, uh, I I don't know, ASL, uh, a bit of ASL at all.
1: Okay. If, if, if it turns out I'm completely wrong, just edit that out.
0: (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah
1: but uh yeah um i mean the whole idea of universal language is 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 such an interesting concept right because while communicating ideas is so important i feel like there are things that get lost um in language too
0: though what gets lost
1: it's been a while since i i spent some time thinking about this but i think when when it comes to i mean poetry for example right i i think it's almost impossible properly translating um a poem into another language while still keeping the same weight as as the original right so while you can literally translate things i think there are things the intangible things that kind of get lost along the way
0: right yeah that makes sense yeah 100 percent.
1: yeah yeah i realize it's a huge departure from ikea furniture so anyway (laughs)
0: are there um so in the id course is it mainly um are there people who do like video art or like videography or specialize in something like that
1: oh yeah yeah um people enter the course from all sorts of creative backgrounds i have some friends who are really into theater they've tried directing plays um so i think it's a while it isn't necessarily uh, that broad a course, it, it attracts a lot of visual people. And um, there are people who are into videos, who are into all sorts of different things. And that's pretty exciting. One thing I've been really, interesting lately, been really interested in lately is, um, I think people call it generative art uh it's the term for for art that's made through with without human touch like the output is made without the without human touch um for example right like if if you leave bread to the rot with mold a certain way, you have no control over what it'll look like in the end um and for all you know it'll develop an image of jesus but that's that's generative art, and a lot of people have been doing that with code lately.
0: As in, like, um, like, generating art using algorithms?
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a cool intersection between, like, computer science and uh, visual things.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was curious to know, what's freelancing in the Philippines like for you?
1: You know, if you're lucky as a freelancer, a lot of your clients are going to come from friends or people you already know who happen to start businesses on their own or, or random people who kind of find you. On the internet. I think the most important thing is making yourself visible. Like the the benefits of talking to people like this, putting yourself out there, putting your art on IG or Twitter or Facebook might not be immediate, but what what an online presence does though is it it, it increases your odds. At least it's better to be there than not to be there, you know. So a bunch of my clients have messaged me on IG, uh, just because they somehow happen to stumble across the things that I've been posting, um, and on Twitter, and I think that's been a pretty big help. But um, I think looking at the industry in a whole as a whole, though, there's there's still a lot of work to do, especially when it comes to setting proper standards, because design in the Philippines is cheap honestly
0: (laughs) i i mean i'm 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 really opinionated about this like well sometimes i see on facebook these these posts that are like um uh the one that i saw most recently was like two text messages that compare us and philippines and then the us one was like um how much does it cost to create like one design study And then there's one person who's and then the text was like oh it costs 150 dollars and then the client was like oh i will make it 200 i will give you 250 dollars because i want it to be really good and then (laughs) there was the other and then the the one below it was like a conversation between like philippine to philippine client philippine client to Philippine designer and it was like how much is of one design study and the other one the designer replied oh, it's 6,000 pesos, and I require a 50% down payment. And the client was like, oh, 6,000, that's too expensive, blah, 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 blah. Like, why is it... I'm like, I'm... uh For me, I feel like if you're a designer and you encounter someone like that who is saying, like, oh, your rates are, like, really, really expensive for some reason, I think that the... I think that as a designer, you should not be entertaining those people at all. And also, and because like the market is just so big, right there, I'm pretty sure there are other people who are willing to pay the rates that you're asking for. It's just a matter of finding those people.
1: Absolutely. Like I completely agree. Uh, I think the frustrating thing though, is that like people like that who don't really see the value of design are are really common looking around the country right i think a lot of people associate design with tarps or or with print shops that can put some text together with an image within the within a matter of minutes right and and print it out and a lot of people are are thinking of design in terms of raw practicality like can people see my logo? Do people know my name? Uh, can people see the image, right? And I think once those boxes are ticked, people are fine, right? And I, I, think, I think that's all the is lack of awareness. Design has the power to emotionally connect to people on a level that's visceral, right? That, that's um, unconscious. And I think edu- letting clients know that design has that kind of power and that kind of value is something a lot of art designers also need to learn more than just turning down clients. It's uh, it's evangelizing the craft,
0: <laughs> right? I I also kind of like the reason why I say I'm kind of opinionated about it is I also see it as a supply and demand issue. It's like uh-huh. when you think about it, like labor is cheap to begin with, is because there's a l- oversupply of talent but not enough demand to meet it. So that's why people are just willing to undercut all the way to zero, uh, because there's just so many people out there, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to purchase your graphic design services at 6,000, because I know that there's going to be someone who's going to be willing to sell their services at 1,000, right? Right. So I I think, but at the same time, like, you kind of trade off like quality versus um, Like, yeah, the quality of the of the 1000 work might not be as good as like the 6000 work or a higher type of work.
1: Oh, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And yeah. like, designers aren't homogenous. You can't you can't trade one for the other. Everybody has their own way of thinking, right? Um, but you know, not 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 everybody keeps that in mind. It's it's it feels like a service instead of a an individual specialized craft kind of thing.
0: I mean like each person like, has their own way of doing stuff
1: exactly and and i feel like that people don't put a value on that specifically
0: i feel like it's because it's hard to measure
1: absolutely yeah
0: <laughs> it's it's like the value is non tangible, so right? people yeah. have a hard yeah, yeah. time placing a number on it
1: i agree completely like <laughs> if you could put a value on creativity like like an actual tangible monetary value on creativity that that would be such a huge boon to, to this industry
0: yeah it makes sense <laughs> yeah man um i was curious to know from the people who graduate in id and do they go into like freelancing like what like what percentage would you say like given I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you might have some friends in like upper batches or something, but do they go into freelancing? Do they go into like agency work? Do they go into a more typical design route? Like where do these people go? Uh,
1: some people go into UX. Actually, I, I know some upperclassmen who now work with uh, with Globe. They work in, in a lot of startups. Um. And some go into agency work, and and some set up their own studios. There's a really popular uh, branding and design studio in the Philippines called Serious Studio, right? Um, and if I'm not mistaken, they they were started by ID alumni, and now they do projects for Ayala and uh, and these really big multinationals. So that's that's fantastic. Um, yeah, other people in my field go into all sorts of work. So I can't really give you statistics because honestly, I'm not 100% sure, but, uh, some people end up loving motion design. Some people end up loving UX. Some people stop designing entirely. I I don't know, but I do feel like a lot of people start out as freelancers. I would even say around maybe 60%. Right.
0: What do you think is the hardest part about uh, freelancing?
1: I think the hardest part about freelancing is, well, like you mentioned a while ago, there it is an, a really saturated market. There are a lot of people who are really, really talented. So the hard, a hard part is standing out.
0: And what advice do you have to other designers who are looking to become freelancers on how to stand up?
1: My... Well, one of the best things I learned, and this is advice that was given to me, is, is that while style is really important, being flexible is is just as important and to, to, to match a client. Um, I think in order to find that personal style, a lot of designers and illustrators beat themselves up about, you know, trying to bring something out within themselves as if Your style was hidden inside of you, and you really need to meditate and focus and just spit that out somehow. But a style doesn't come from thinking really hard and trying to manifest it in your own mind. And this is advice that was given to me. The key to finding your own style, and I think this goes for a lot of things in life, is to keep trying different things as fast as possible until you find something that you latch on to.
0: I mean, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, I feel like college is a good way or like a good avenue to begin doing that to to start off with. Like for me, I didn't know that I was gonna become the engineer I was today if I didn't explore all these other languages in college and decided, oh, okay, this is the thing I really want to focus on, and this is what I will really want to dedicate my career to. So. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with what you what you said.
1: It's super cool that that applies to the software engineering too.
0: <laughs> yeah, like in my first year, I wanted to become a uh, like an Android developer, like developing mobile apps and stuff like that. Oh, and huh. I figured out that it was too hard <laughs> and um, <laughs> and later on i think my junior senior year i dedicated myself into like web and i've just been doing web ever since never touched android ever again so yeah i feel like yeah the exploratory period during college is really really useful
1: yeah and and i think i think exploration can happen anytime too i feel like a lot of personal growth happened for me during the quarantine Uh, that's when i started exploring with uh Actually, I only started going hard on UX design during the the pandemic because I think Red cross Red Cross needed some volunteers and I figured why not
0: Do you ever find it hard to start um like I'm sure you have you work on like passion projects on the side right mm-hmm. um do you ever find it hard or difficult to start? On a passion project you're just like sometimes do you think that you get stuck in your own thoughts so much that you don't put stuff down into paper or put st- stuff down into like a tablet and start drawing or something like that
1: absolutely i i've been recording my thoughts for the past several months and i've been stuck in this rut for the past two uh- <laughs> Like back in, back in July and uh, March, oh wait back in March, April and May, um, I was starting and finishing passion projects really quickly, but now I've kind of slowed down. I think a lot of that ability to even start a passion project is linked to my own confidence in myself and whether I know it can be done from the start because I think if there's even a hint of doubt in my own head, something in me doesn't even want to begin.
0: Do you time box your um, your passion projects or do you just work on them as, as you go?
1: I work on them as I go, but I have this I had this personal rule I used to keep, which is if I if I didn't have it done, well depending on the scope of the project, but for the most part, if I hadn't had the project done within a within a span of two weeks, that was probably a sign I wasn't going to finish it at all. So I would just move on.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I guess this kind of relates to um, planning out projects. So when uh, I guess at in school, what we were what we were taught was, um, let's say that I was starting like a new coding project or something like that. Um, Usually, you would think about all the requirements of like what this coding project had to be like like, what it had to execute or whatever it needed to do, and you would assign, like, a time to all those tasks that you would need to do in order to consider the project done. But then, I guess, another way to think about it was, um, let's say that we, instead of estimating how much time do I need to work on these set of tasks, we could flip it on its head and say okay, I have one month to work on a project. I don't know what that project is going to be, but what is achievable within that one month that I could say, okay, by the end of one month, I'll be finished with whatever tasks, right? So yeah, I, I feel like it's 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 an interesting way to think about it. You think more about like what is feasible to do within one month versus, oh, I have this project, and I need to finish it within X amount of time.
1: I'm going to write that down. I think that's that's really useful. I, I feel like when we start from the project itself, and start of, instead of from the timeline backwards, there's a tendency to become way too ambitious and think about the details too hard. But I think thinking about the timeline first and then whittling down what needs to be done based on that probably forces people to finish an MVP at the very least, right? And that's such a strong thing because you can iterate based on that.
0: Yeah, like, the way I like to think about it is when you think about time boxing your project and then thinking about the stuff that you need to do, at the very beginning, um, when you've already planned out your tasks, it should feel like you have, like, I like to call it this looming deadline by like the end of one month, if I'm not able to finish it, then I might have estimated wrong, or I might have been over ambitious to actually completing all those stuff. So,
1: all right, I, I think that makes total sense. When it comes to doing projects, do you prefer like quantity over quality? I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on getting projects done?
0: Quantity over quality. Um, for me, I have a bias towards action. So, I don't know. You've worked with me. Um, I feel like yeah. I'm. For me, I'm like really, really direct in the way I want things to be executed. I'd rather have something rather than nothing. Like one is greater than zero, right? So yeah, I mean yeah. And so in that in that case, I would say quantity, I'd rather have something over it being super perfect. You get what I'm trying to say here?
1: I know what you mean. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh, It's great. Like I'm seeing that kind of shift in mindset among a lot of people. Like most people I ask nowadays would prefer something done quick as long as it's there than, you know, spending time over doing something really long just to polish it.
0: Yeah, because you might just be polishing and polishing and you just might not get to uh, like, it might not ever be perfect or might not ever be good enough. And it just blocks you from getting your work out there to begin with. So yeah, totally.
1: that ties, that ties really well with the whole time blocking idea. There was a time I tried doing one design every day. Um, so I give myself just 24 hours to spit out anything. Uh, For 100 days, it was pretty good. I think that was probably the most productive time ever for me. It was a personal challenge to do one visual thing every day for 100 days. And I think what that does to the mind is it releases you from this inhibition to make something perfect, knowing that you'll make something else tomorrow anyway. And I think that's a really healthy mindset to take anywhere
0: we we had this joke um among a couple of friends of mine like the, like we literally asked like the people who are designers in our group like oh so what's your process and like it's just the open ended question but then people Did just you- like go into it so so what's your process
1: Oh my God. You know, I wish I was one of those really interesting people who could tell you, like, I sit under a hot shower for six hours until I come out with some epiphany. But I just deep dive into research, like, the internet. Um, I don't have any personal routines I do. I guess it differs per project. Um, but I find that a lot of my best ideas happen when I'm doing menial work, like when I'm brushing my teeth or sitting on the toilet. Not even kidding. A lot of, a lot of my epiphanies happen in the bathroom while I'm doing ordinary things unrelated to the project itself. I can't really explain why. (laughs) Uh, But that's, that's really effective, at least in the conceptualizing phase. Once an idea is there, I usually toss it around with my friends, we come out with some key visuals that we're really into, and then we start developing the idea from there, coming out with stuff shooting it down, coming out with stuff, shooting it down, just building and building and building until we have something we're actually happy with.
0: What What's the critique process? Like, how do you um, do your friends critique your work or anything like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've come out with uh, with a system that I think a lot of designers follow, which is we, we actually don't start with the visuals. We start with a question of, you know, what are you trying to convey? What are you trying to say with this or? What kind of experience are, tra- are you trying to evoke with this, right? Or what kind of people are you trying to speak to? Who's your audience? And and we base every single critique based on that. Um, so while an art critic might be able to extrapolate like, oh, this work is an allusion to so-and-so, and it's not effective because it's ugly, I think design criticism has the take a step back right from personal biases and really consider. Okay. So who are you trying to talk to? What are you trying to say? And, and how, how does it work that way? And then just work from that.
0: There are, are, are you familiar with like the double diamond design process?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like you, like it's basically two diamonds and like you, I think the first phase is like you explore all the possible options. You can what's it converge? Oh, so diverge on all the possible options. You consider every every single thing. Then you diverge on one solution. And then you just do that another time until you figure out like, oh, this is the design that we're gonna go for. Uh I think
1: I think that diagram is is a is a pretty good visual for the process, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I uh, there's this one um, there's this one uh, research um, research paper research I don't know study research study thing that I was reading into, and it's about um, justification of like specific reasons so like how do you appear like more persuasive in terms of um like for example if you're trying to justify a design to a client then um you might be able to use the information that that was um attained through this study so um I think it was related to like compliance and essentially um the the essentially there was a situation where there were like 10 people lined up for a photocopying machine in the office and one person went up and they literally said hey could i use the photocopying machine and to the first person on the line like they wanted to cut and like use the photocopying machine and um so with that phrase I think ninety nine percent of the time, um, the person said no, or like, "Oh, can I use a photogramming machine?" Like, no. But then, um, and then they ha- so that was their control scenario, and then they had two variable scenarios where they introduced a f- a true reason and a fake reason. So, um, the true reason is something like. Um, so the person goes up to the first person in the line and says, "Hey, could I use the photo- photocopying machine because um, I have a meeting and I need to rush to uh, this meeting and I need these copies right now." And the compliance rate, like the, I guess like the denial rate, went down by like eighty percent or something like that. And I oh, was wow. like, "Yeah," <laughs> I was like, simply because they added like a reason to it. And the fake reason, I think, was something like, hey, uh, the the person went up to the, to the first person in line and said, hey, could I use the photocopying machine because I need to use it right now? Or something like really stupid like that. And they got the same results as the true reason. So I was like, interesting. So because there was a justification behind the ask, or justification behind... What you were trying to do it made people more compliant to what you had to say that's so (laughs) odd (laughs) right so i feel like this could be used in terms of like um when you're trying to communicate something to like a client and saying like hey i think that this type is better instead of saying this type is better say like oh this type is better because I know if you buy it, it might be cheaper than this other type, or this type might be better because it has more font weights compared to this other one. Instead of just saying, "Oh, it's just better," just because, just because it's like my op- own opinion.
1: That's that's a really good point. I feel like designers in general could could learn a lot by reading up on persuasion and uh, and and stuff like that. They're totally unrelated to design itself, but wow, okay, that's fascinating. <laughs> Just need to justify something in order to get it handed to you, I guess.
0: Yeah. Um. When I was at, when I was at interviewing school at Outco, the example they gave was, like, let's say that you're negotiating for, like, a signing bonus. You could say instead of saying, "Hey, could I have?" Uh, could you add an extra, like. to my offer letter like usually they might shoot you down for that but then you could say something like oh would you mind adding $10,000 to my offer letter because rent in San Francisco is super expensive well well, everybody knows that rent in San Francisco is super expensive right so I mean like it Mm -hmm. might seem not intuitive to say that but it actually works so wow. (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's kind of crazy.
1: I wonder if you could use a control or, or a fake reason, like, because
0: I need it or something like that. <laughs> See if it's still it still works. <laughs> because
1: I need it. Because
0: <laughs> I need it. I think this is a good place to end it off. But yeah, thanks for being on the show. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was fun. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast with JJ Akowili. Thanks JJ for being such an amazing guest and sharing your experience as a graphic designer. I think the most insightful part of our entire conversation was how designers should be timeboxing their projects and think about what design is feasible in a certain period of time instead of thinking about a project and assigning time to it and it just becomes ever so expanding. So it was great hearing JJ's insight on that and what his process was like. So thanks again, JJ, for being such an informative guest on the show. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of other student designers can learn a lot from you. Also, for us to bridge our listeners to the guests that we have on our show, you can join our online community on circle.so called The Martian Community. Get the chance to widen your personal network, connect with our guest speakers, and interact with others who share the same passions and interests like you. Again, that's Martian Community on Circle.so. That's Martian.Circle.so. Martian.Circle.so, like Marvin the Martian. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have an awesome day.